Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Priority Status by J Public Relations. I'm Kristen Mahler, Senior Vice President and Head of the Toronto Office at JPR. Joining me today is Dr. Nika White, a national authority and fearless advocate for diversity, inclusion, and equity. As an award-winning management and leadership consultant, keynote speaker, published author, and executive practitioner for DEI efforts across business, government, nonprofit, and education, Dr. White helps organizations break barriers and integrate diversity into their business frameworks. Earlier this year, JPR had the incredible opportunity to participate in a training with Dr. White centered on intentional inclusion within leadership and how DEI manifests in theory and in practice. The work Dr. White is doing is more important than ever, so we are honored to have her join us today and share more about how she built her career in practice and how creating belongingness is central to any organization who seeks to be a place of diversity and inclusion. And with that, we'll jump right in. Welcome, Dr. Nika White. How are you today? I am doing very well, and I hope you are. I am. Thank you so much for joining us on Priority Status. We're thrilled to have you here. We, as an agency, are just really impressed by your work and would really love for you to share a little bit more about how you got to this place in your career. You've been in the diversity and inclusion space for over 20 years. It's really remarkable, the business that you've built. We'd love to know how you got started. So my background is marketing communications, and I spent a number of years actually working directly in that industry. It's what my undergraduate degree is in. I loved the space of marketing communications, always on time, on budget, on strategy. The dynamics of that industry really appealed to me, and I thought that I was going to be in that industry for the long haul. And I recall one day sitting in my office when I was working for a large advertising agency that's um, headquartered in Greenville, South Carolina, but it also has a presence in New York. I was in between both the New York and the Greenville office, and I was always very envious of the level of diversity in the workforce from the New York office. But what I also was keenly aware of at the time is that even New York, the advertising capital of the world, was challenged with diversifying the workforce. And so I remember sitting in my office and I had this epiphany. I was thinking about how much I just loved my career path. And I wanted to know why aren't there others who look like me as a black female who's taking advantage of what I thought was a very fulfilling and rewarding and exciting career path. And when I began to follow that thought through and consider the fact that when you work for a marketing communications firm or advertising agency, it's your charge to be smart and effective marketing partners to your clients whose consumer constituencies represent diverse America. So there was this huge business case and this reason for agencies and more calm firms to be much more intentional and thoughtful about creating diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I couldn't let that thought go. So I remember going to the president's CEO, who was very hands-on at the time. He still led this 400-plus person agency, and he was quite accessible, and I had a good rapport. And I just you know, shared a similar dialogue that I'm sharing with you and outlined what I thought was a very astute business case for why we needed to be thinking more intently about this work. It was very apparent to me that at the time, the attorney general was knocking on the doors of many agencies in New York saying, you have to diversify. Our industry depends upon it. This is not a suggestion. It is a mandate. We'll be back in maybe six months to see how you're doing. But no one was paying attention at all to Greenville, South Carolina. 
And our BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal for the agency at the time was to be the most admired agency. And so my point was, if we want to reach that BHAG, why are we waiting for someone to knock on our doors to tell us what we already know that we need to be doing? And he listened intently, asked some very thought-provoking questions, and then ultimately turned to me to say, Nika, I agree, we're going to do it, and you're going to lead it. Now tell me how. And I was prepared for everything in that conversation with the tell me how, but I did have the wherewithal to know that I needed to put really smart people in my camp that were already quite successful and accomplished and creating great DEI transformation for their respective organizations. And I just began to immerse myself. And so fast forward years later, an opportunity presented itself for me to work full time directly into this space. And then the rest is history because fast forward again, I ended up launching my management consulting firm, which intersects the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership in business. So that's my story. (laughs) It's really remarkable, actually, that you were in sort of the place and you were in marketing and advertising at a time when this was something that was obvious, yet people weren't paying as much attention to it as they should have been. What challenges did you face in sort of that first year of working and creating this space in the, the agency you were at that you weren't really prepared for? Yeah, well, it was really new territory for all of us, I mean, including myself. And so while I had a passion for it and I knew the value of it, the how-to and the execution and the implementation strategies, I had to become smart on really quickly. And so we fumbled a good bit. You know, we just began to spend a lot of time on this listening and learning tour to really equip ourselves with what does success look like, particularly in the industry of, you know, advertising, marketing, communications. And we did a lot of benchmarking against other organizations. We just began to think about where there were gaps within our structure, our workforce, you know, our policies and systems. And um, we formed a DEI council that was one of our first initiatives. The council was really instrumental because it wasn't just now Nika and maybe one or two other people that were helping to facilitate what this pathway needed to look like. But we were able to convene other thought leaders and uh, people that were just as passionate to help us on this journey. And that we slowly but surely saw that organizations were beginning to reach out to us to benchmark against what we were doing. And so it definitely was a learning curve for each of us. I learned the importance of change management. You know, you can't just start facilitating this body of work without considering the importance of change management. People have different mental models and their journey around this broad topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion varies from person to person. So we had to take that into account as we were creating this level of readiness to get as many people as possible prepared for the journey ahead. But we were very aware of the need to not try to conquer Rome in a day. And so we did celebrate some small wins and small milestones. And that gave us the momentum to then go after some loftier goals. And then, you know, over time, we saw that we were able to make some good progress. It's interesting the way that you say that, because I feel like when we did our um, JPR, when we had our opportunity to work with you in our intentional inclusion within leadership training, It was really interesting to hear how you explained how different diversity, equity, and inclusion is in theory and in practice and how we learned about it. Could you share a little bit more with our audience about how you approach teaching people to come from a place of better understanding and compassion for others? 
Yeah, well, I think it begins with, you know, finding opportunities through safe space conversations to meet people where they are. And again, just to acknowledge that we all have different mental models and um, knowledge base around this broad, complex topic of DEI. And we all are on a, a journey of learning. And some of us are a little bit further than others. But I think that the compassion and the empathy piece is so critically important because that is where it begins. You know, this conversation is really at its core about humanity. Everyone wants to be seen, valued, heard, respected, accepted. And I think that if we can get people to grab hold of just that centric thought, it helps us to recognize that we all should be called to action in some capacity around helping to create spaces that deliver upon that for everyone. I often talk about belonging and the fact that it's hard for any person to show up at their best in any environment if they're always questioning whether or not they belong. So if people are questioning, do I belong here? Am I valued? Am I seen? Am I safe? Do I have full opportunity for success? If those are the questions that are going through people's minds on a daily basis, then they're not bringing their A game to that environment, which means that from a team perspective or even a department or organizational or societal perspective, we aren't reaching our full potential. And I think that understanding that leads us to a deepened commitment towards showing empathy and compassion so that we can create opportunities for people to show up at their best. And I realize that not everyone defines diversity, equity, and inclusion in the same way. And so as we did with, you know, JPR, we also like to, with all audiences, make sure that we're level setting and that we give people a common language that everyone can coalesce around as we are learning with and from each other. Diversity is simply a point of respect in which things differ. And I find that oftentimes people, when they use the word diversity, they are very specifically thinking about certain demographics. It's not just about the optics of age, race, and gender. Diversity is really broad in nature, and it has so many different dimensions. And so as a society, we have to become much more sophisticated in how in which we talk about and define diversity. The difference between diversity and inclusion is that inclusion is all about action. It does not necessarily happen organically all the time. And so we have to make sure that we are being mindful and that we are being intentional to help foster inclusion. And so I think it starts with, again, just the learning and development and making sure that we are doing our part to help eliminate some of the lack of clarity that can lead to resistance. It's something that's interesting right now because I feel like the term DEI is being spoken about so much more than ever before in mainstream media, yet what you just said about diversity being one piece of it and inclusion being the action around it is something that I'm not quite sure that everybody really understands or that comes to the beginning of that thought. So I really do love the approach of like, yes, you can be diverse and like there's so many ways to be diverse. It doesn't need to be gender, race, religion, or whatever. It's coming from a lot of different places, but also how does everybody feel like they belong? That's a really, really important thought that we need to keep with us always. Yeah, no, I completely agree. The belonging piece is so incredibly important. And I find that one of the greatest ways to help ensure a strong sense of belonging is when we can become much more intentional about addressing psychological safety. Mm -hmm. You know, people need to be able to show up authentically and to not have to cover or mask because they fear the repercussions or the consequences of being their whole selves. 
it impacts productivity in a negative way. It impacts, you know, output in a negative way. And so I think there's a huge business case for it, as well as, you know, the moral imperative of just wanting to create spaces where everyone has a sense of belonging. And so I, I think it's critically important for us to meet people where they are just for the effort of bringing them along so that they can become champions and ambassadors of this work as well. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about when clients are coming to you seeking your your help, are they coming to you mainly after specific instances or sort of growth projections or what sort of is a typical corporate client coming to you and seeking your help with? So it's a great question, Kristen. And the conversations are changing. Over the past 12 months, if you can imagine, there have been some new motivators and drivers of people entering into the DEI conversation. We have seen an influx of clients um, strictly because of the George Floyd murder and what that meant for so many people who were witness to it because it was all on the media. It was very visual. It was very hard. And it created this pronounced appetite for people to feel called to action in ways that would be meaningful and lead towards impact. And I think that that certainly, it created this driver and this motivation that we have not seen historically. And so that has been definitely a driving force. I think that When we consider the complexity of the global pandemic and how that has certainly impacted several vulnerable communities that have been disproportionately impacted, that certainly has been a driver of people's deepened commitment and intentionality around DEI. And then you do have some of those organizations that are quite forward-thinking and progressive, and they've always had a level of value and commitment to DEI, and they're just looking to ramp up their efforts and elevate their body of work relevant to DEI to the next level. So people have different drivers or motivators when they reach out, but we certainly have seen an influx of late because of all of these social complex issues that tend to show forth in a way that um, particularly a lot of the younger generations have been very vocal about, you know, a lot of the millennials, they want to be a part of organizations and workforces that are very proactive and um, they have a strong position about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so if you want to be seen as an employer destination where you can attract and retain great talent, then that's been a, a certainly a driving force as well. But I would say that there are a number of motivators that we're seeing, but definitely George Floyd murder was a big instigator of people finding it appropriate to deepen their commitment to DEI. Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible what his murder sort of launched in terms of a real global movement and for change. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly awful, awful situation and incredibly terrible for him and his family. And, but I do feel like it's sparked an enormous amount of, like you said, motivation for people to change and for people to seize this moment in history as an opportunity to be better, be better employers, employees, and just all around human beings. Right. A perceived crisis, and I use the word perceived because when we think about the systemic racism and racial inequities, um, while it became pronounced in terms of people's understanding of the severity of it, the issues have been looming for 400 plus years, but it was the how visual it was. Um, mm-hmm. When people were able to see that 
it created this um, groundswell of desire to want to do something and to stand in solidarity with the brown and black community members and to address it in a way that would allow us as a society to emerge stronger, emerge stronger because we are willing to believe you know, the severity of the issue and then to be called to action to do something about it. But I've heard a lot of people say around that time, let's not waste a crisis or, you know, let's not allow a situation that was designed to unite us to now cause us to not to get something out of it. And I think people took those words and those sentiments to heart and they didn't want to find ourselves in a predicament of, you know, repeating that. So it's unfortunate that we've seen other incidents. You know, I think about what's happening now with the Asian American Pacific Islander community members, particularly women. It's disheartening. You know, it just goes to show the importance of needing to dismantle systemic racism in general. It's not just about the Black and African American community, but it's, it's many of the marginalized populations of people that find themselves oppressed and marginalized and disenfranchised and quite honestly, victims of hate crimes. And so the intersectionality of it all is an important conversation that needs to be amplified and surfaced as well. I agree with you. Totally. And I'm I'm happy that you brought up the recent crimes against the Asian community. And I think that that is, you know, also being a woman, I think that the piece of it is, is also what you mentioned before about safety mm-hmm. and that these groups just don't feel safe and therefore they don't feel like they belong. And there really does need to be a shift in the way that people are engaging with each other and understanding, coming from a place of understanding and empathy and and so that everybody can feel safe. It was awful to hear about the murders that happened in Atlanta last week. And I wonder how we can, as a, as a people, come together more and not have these things continuously happen. Because for everyone that we do hear about, I'm sure that there are more that are happening that don't make the news. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it took several individuals that were brave enough to say, hey, we're not paying attention to this. This is an issue. And bringing it to the forefront that allowed people to understand just how severe the situations were and how frequent these hate crimes were occurring against Asian Americans. And so, you know, I think what that does is it shows just how important it is for us to be mindful and to be paying attention and to use our voice of influence to help bring about greater level of clarity to these horrific issues so that something can be done about it. Have you seen anything come up in your business since the events of last week in Atlanta? Has anybody reached out to you specifically about work around this or that they're concerned about how they can support their employees or their community? Yes. In fact, we have. We've had a number of conversations. Mostly what organizations are seeking is just, you know, coaching and counseling around what should they do? You know, I think that they're Mm -hmm. feeling called to action, but they want to make sure that they're being thoughtful so that whatever type of action they take is effective and meaningful. It's not seen as performative, you know? Mm -hmm. I think about after George Floyd's murder, so many organizations were releasing statements, right? There was a lot of criticism that many of those organizations were met with simply because people saw the words to be hollow because it wasn't really aligned with actions that the organization was also taking. And people took notice of that. And so I think that it is wise for organizations to think intently about, you know, how to respond 
and how are they producing evidence of, you know, aligning words with action and not let it just be a knee-jerk reaction. So I know that many of the conversations we were having over the past week or so has been around what should we do? You know, how do we carefully navigate this? How do we stand in solidarity and support with our Asian American colleagues? You know, how do we even help those who are not a part of the Asian community to who are really interested in being allies and, and want to be able to provide, you know, meaningful check-ins and ways of support? How do we help coach them? And so those are some of the conversations that we've been having of late, very specifically related to the hate crimes against um, Asian Americans. How has your business changed in the past 12 months in terms of hosting events for clients? You know, now you're doing everything digitally, virtually. Has that changed your approach? You know, I think just like most organizations, we certainly had to become even more smart about how in which we were leveraging digital assets to serve clients. But I mean, quite honestly, Kristen, I think that it has catapulted my business to new heights. You know, I think that we saw the pandemic as an opportunity, especially considering that most of our our training and facilitation is, it causes us to have to travel a good bit. But in this regard, we were able to pretty much over the past 12 months, eliminate travel altogether, primarily because we were all taking precautions. But then two, the value of that is a lot of our clients are global in nature. They have, you know, multiple facilities. And so when we were convening people, it was just a matter of aligning the timing from a a time zone perspective, but people were able to all be involved. And so I think that it has created um, some additional wins for us because, you know, again, we've had to pivot, but it certainly has not hindered us in our ability to be effective in in serving our clients' needs. It's really incredible right now, I think, that how much people have adapted to using technology. And, you know, they say that it's the pandemic has accelerated the use of technology in in business, you know, 10 or more years in the course of less than a year. And it sounds like you've, you know, you've obviously adapted quite well to it. I agree with you. It seems like there are a lot of ways that things like a training with you could easily have taken up three days for some people between traveling and going and everything. Whereas maybe it's actually only a half a day of work. Yes. It seems to be much more effective right now. No, it is. And we've discovered so many useful digital tools that really helps to create greater level of interaction with our, you know, online learning and development experiences. And so it's been really good for us. It's it's somewhat bittersweet because it's not just the pivot as it relates to the pandemic, but we've also had to pivot a little bit as it relates to, again, this pronounced appetite of people entering into this space because of the George Floyd murder mm-hmm. and the the realization of the severity of systemic racism and how it shows forth in every system without exception. And so we've had to even, you know, add some new training opportunities, learning and development experiences, specifically around, you know, understanding racial equity and the constructs of race and racism and things of that nature. And so We've done a lot of safe space um, conversations where it's really not a training per se, but it's more or less just giving people this safe space to process and to, as they're talking about how in which they're navigating and to ask questions to help them, again, just to be able to navigate the complexity of, of the broad situation. You know, I loved when we did our training with you, the use of, you had that text response function yes. and the word clouds that came up. And I thought that that was just so cool. I wasn't expecting that. And I think it really lightened it for 
the people participating. We went into it not really knowing how it would go, but the way that you've integrated those technologies made it feel very interactive and made it feel like we were very much together in the same page. And it probably helps you also obviously getting feedback in real time. Yeah. And so that is our intent. We want to try to ensure that we aren't compromising the learning experience just because we have to be digital. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that it also creates this opportunity where people maybe if they're face to face with their colleagues and they don't feel quite as compelled to just, you know, verbalize what their thoughts and their questions are. You know, we've had people that would use the chat feature to put their questions or comments, which is a little less invasive to some people, or maybe they will even send their questions and comments directly to the facilitator, you know, myself or one of my teammates who've been, who mm-hmm. are facilitating these sessions so that their questions or comments are anonymous. And so I think there's a lot of value value that we have seen, as I mentioned before, that quite honestly, when you're in a face-to-face environment, it doesn't necessarily allow for that fluidity. Definitely. I'd love to know from you, if you have instances that would come to mind that you would share as a career highlight, something that you felt particularly proud about that you just are you know, excited to share. Yeah. So we just celebrated our fourth year anniversary. So we are still a relatively young company. I'm excited because one of the highlights is actually upcoming. It's we're in the midst of it now. You know, we have a team of astute DEI practitioners who make me smart every day. And I just, I enjoy working with them. And I think it's just such a privilege to work alongside people that have deep convictions for this work and they're really committed to it. So on March 29th, we are overnight doubling the sides of our team because of the growth. And so that's a, that's wow. a career highlight. Yes, that's certainly a career highlight for us. If I think about more of the body of work that we've been able to do, I think another career highlight is our ability as a firm to work very closely with one of our clients in South Carolina around increasing the ability for minority-owned firms and women-owned businesses to be able to compete effectively in the marketplace. And so we've created a minority business accelerator program that we execute for one of our clients. And if we think about just the significance of that effort, it has allowed so many businesses that often are in a, a disadvantaged position, if you will, to be able to move towards a place of competing now effectively in the marketplace with great opportunities. And they've been able to scale to size and to to build their business in a way to where the business owners are now not just working in the business, but they're working on the business, growing the business, taking it to the next level. And so that's really exciting to me, primarily because I'm an entrepreneur myself. I'm a Black woman entrepreneur. But then also because I realize that there is huge discrepancies in terms of women-owned businesses, ethnic minority-owned businesses, and even like veteran-owned businesses and business owners that are part of the LGBT community to get the opportunities that I feel like they deserve. A rising tide lifts all boats. And that's kind of the sentiment that makes me proud of that effort that my firm has been able to be a part of. They say that women leaders are so much more effective than men because they come from a place of understanding. And that's sort of generally the, how a female mind thinks. And it sounds like that is obviously at the core of what you're doing and trying to understand and, and help others understand. But it's just really such important work that you're doing because 
if, like you said, a rising tide lifts all boats and we all need to know that helping each other is just going to help everybody. So, you know, having them and that mentality and going about any work that anybody does is really important. I would love to also ask you, um, as part of our JPR Priority Status podcast themes, we are asking our guests this year, how do you own your story? How are you being you know, authentic to yourself in your day-to-day? How are you owning your story? Gosh, it's such a great question. And there's so many ways in which I could respond to this. I think that the way that I own my story is I'm true to the counsel, the coaching, the message that I send through, you know, my writings, my social media to the work of DEI. It's not just something that's part of our our speak as we are collaborating with clients and putting them on a trajectory of deep and commitment to DEI, but we live it, you know? And I think about my own business and how in which we operate and how in which we allow DEI to manifest throughout our operations. And we hold true to the same type of counsel we give to our clients. And so I think it's about being true to that and not wavering from it and being somewhat unapologetic with it. You know, we are one of those firms that truly believes in impact and how in which we serve our clients has everything to do with that as our leading motivator. We are not about activity, which has a start and an end date. We really want to see DEI transformation occur so that the work is sustainable. I think it's just allowing ourselves to also be true to the work, not just in, you know, as, as we vocalize it to our clients, but in, in true deed and how in which we operate our own business and even our own personal lives, not wavering on that. And so, you know, I think there's something to be said for believing in the value that that everyone brings to a different environment, letting that show forth and how in which we engage others. And I think that's important. You know, this work begins at the personal level. I tell people that all the time. And so if individuals at the personal level cannot get a, a deepened level of appreciation and valuing of diversity, equity, and inclusion, then we're not going to be able to take that sentiment and transfer that to different environments that we may find ourselves a part of. That's so true. I wonder if you feel like there is a shift also in the appetite for this, just because the younger generation right now that's in the workforce, millennials and even, you know, Generation Z, that's, they're sort of newer to the workforce, that they have a very strong appetite for it. And I do feel like that's a bigger driving force around the overall dialogue in the workplace. Yeah, I do. I think that, um, you know, we have to realize that right now the workforce is comprised of like five different generations, you know, and people show up and how in which they like to be interacted with and, and how in which they like to work looks different. And so, you know, we have to make sure that we're solving for it in that regard. There's no longer really a one size fits all approach. And so we really pride ourselves in being a boutique consultancy in that regard, where we are aligning solutions to match very specifically with our clients' um, challenges and the types of output that they're seeking from a success perspective relevant to DEI. So there's not really a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, we really like to learn our, our clients' um, industry, their business, their culture, their pain points. We become, in essence, an extension of their team. And so we help them on that journey of building up their inclusive leadership muscles so that they can sustain the work for the long haul. That's really great. Do you have 
anything else that you wanted to add about how you work with companies or something that you feel like you're really offering that's quite different in your space? Yeah. So I'll just share at a high level that we are a full service DEI management consulting firm. And so we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. We work with all types of clients, you know, different industries, private, public sector. Primarily, our goal is to help our clients to integrate into their business frameworks, um, strategic diversity, intentional inclusion, and a lens of equity. Our services fit under two primary categories, one of which is DEI strategy work. And the other is um, instructional design, so content creation, facilitation of these learning and development experiences around so many of the content areas that fit under the broad umbrella of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we would love to be a partner and a resource to anyone who has uh, reached a point where you really are wanting to do this work in a way that leads to sustainable outcomes and drives some really good impact for your organization and all of those that are affiliated with your organization. Well, I can personally say that the work that you do is really transformative and participating in it with the JPR team earlier this year has really given us an amazing tool to launch our um, diversity, equity, and inclusion committee and trying to be a better workplace for people of all types. So it's it's certainly given us perspective to think about things in a in a much more empathetic way and you know we look forward to having more opportunities to work closely with you and you, and your company because I think that what you're doing is really incredible work and and really important work that can't be overlooked. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to have this chance just to share a little bit more about NWC and and the the work of DEI, which we're, again, we're incredibly passionate about. And we are honored to have a a chance to connect with them, JPR, and um, look forward to continuing to find ways to collaborate. Well, thank you so much, Dr. White. We will talk to you soon. And that's the end of this episode of JPR's priority status. For more information, you can check out our page on iTunes for details about Dr. White and her company and some important links that can lead you to more information about Dr. White's company. And we look forward to talking again soon. Thank you. Thank you.